0: Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry.
1: The Bible records an unfolding revelation, that is, that it's progressive. There's the Old Testament, and in the Old Testament we learn, well, there's one God, and this is over and against the idea of idols. And then through the New Testament, and even before the New Testament, we can see dimly in the Old Testament the Spirit of God and the Messiah, but it's really only with the New Testament that brings out clearly that God is Trinity, that God is three-person. And so in the New Testament, we encounter the Son, you know, who claims equality with God, but then Christ promises the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is given in the book of Acts, and that really is fully realized only with the founding of the church. And so this Trinitarian understanding unfolds historically, and with the truth about God, the more responsibility people are given. And this is what Paul is describing in Acts 17 on the Areopagus. He traces briefly the history for these Greeks who actually have no familiarity or very little familiarity with Jewish religion. But in Acts 17:29, he says, Being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. Because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man, here referring to Christ, whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. And actually Paul doesn't get to finish his speech or sermon because when he talks about the resurrection of the dead, they begin to get a little bit disturbed. But he says that at the most basic level, even from your own teaching, you learned Greek philosophers, you know that God is, and he quotes a Greek poet, is the one in whom we live and move and have our being. And so at the most basic level, we need to turn from idols to the living God. And then Paul introduces Jesus, the man Jesus, who will judge the world. And there, you know, his message is cut short. They begin to grumble, so he doesn't go on to talk about the Holy Spirit, which is the end point of the gospel, actually. You know, we could take history and divide it in three ways, three stages. That step one is people turn from idols to God. They realize, oh, there's a living God. Step two, in the New Testament, that people realize, oh, there's the Son of God. There's Christ, the Incarnate One. And then step three is the gift of the Holy Spirit. The realization, oh, that God is Trinity. And maybe this pertains then to the next verse I'd like for us to look at. That's in Matthew 12, 31. Therefore I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people. But blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him. Either in this age or in the age to come pretty harsh. But the idea is greater knowledge, greater understanding, greater responsibility. So the truth of God, which is truth, right? It is truth itself. Truth is Trinitarian. Truth proceeds from the Father through the Son and is realized fully through the Spirit. But this full realization of truth is tied to the historical event of the incarnation, the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now I'm not saying this develops for God, but for humankind it unfolds historically. And each point in this unfolding truth, with each point, there is increased responsibility. God has overlooked the times of ignorance, step one. And now there is the possibility of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Maybe another approach to the same idea is that God as love is a Trinitarian realization. Which is not to say that love is otherwise absent. I think that all people know about love. But humanity in the Old Testament did not know of the law of love which Jesus talks about. In Matthew 22, he says all the law and prophets hang upon the love of neighbor and the love of God. In John 13, 34, Jesus says the law of love is a new commandment. A new commandment I give to you. That you love one another even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And so if we describe the fullness of truth connected to the fullness of love, The love of the father apart from the son, I think it's like that of a child and a father. The the child is loved but cannot be entrusted with the capacities of the adult. And in the period of the law, the period of the Old Testament, I think it describes a time in which truth was presumed to be, oh, well, it's like commands, you know, it's like the law. Maybe good for the child, but as the child cannot t- take in the fullness of love, there is a limit to it. And so apart from the revelation of the Son, the truth of God really did not take on a full, incarnate, apprehensible dimension with all this entails. And certainly it did not entail spiritual participation The truth stood outside, you know, kind of outside the human psyche, outside of human experience, like commands of the law do. So while we might describe each period in human history in the Bible as revealing the love of God, the three persons of the Trinity, they're all promoted by the love of God, the love of the Father, though, apart from the revelation of the Son, well, that's like the law. And before the revealing of the Son and the Spirit, the times of ignorance were overlooked. But what if we do that now? I think it's a mistake. It's an error. Whenever truth is reduced to law or propositions or some sort of abstract universal truths—that that is when it's not made personal, this is a falsehood. Moses would presume God is like an object of sight, like a fire or light, you know, that you can't look at directly. But so too notions of God as, oh, the first cause or as pure being or, oh, just as creator and not redeemer. Paul argues in Acts that we all know that in him we live and move. That is, we can argue to the creator from the creation, but this does not bring us to Christ. This gives us a kind of Aristotelian, unmoved mover, the God who is absent from creation, rather than the God of creation in Scripture, in Christ, who is upholding all things, the nexus of creation, through his personal imminent involvement. Through the Word. And so the transcendence of God becomes closed off to us. You know, we picture him as a kind of deist sort of God. Maybe he knocks over the first domino or he sets the creation into motion like a clock, but his eternality lies beyond time. The Newtonian conception that time was there and God inserted the world into it. And there's not this understanding of time and history as a relationship. It's just a mere measurement. And the God of the law, and the God, I think, described in this understanding. The problem is the law displaces God. This is the Jewish problem. They believe in the law rather than believing in Christ, which is a displacement of God. But of course the Jewish problem is the human problem. That a cosmos set in motion by the Father apart from the Son, even if we recognize God's power, still even creation is not understood as a direct expression of the love of God, which we get in Christ. It's Christ who calls his disciples into friendship, into the participation with the Father. He says... In John 15 15 I have called you friends for all things that I have heard from my father I have made known to you and so Christ opens a personal relationship that is a relationship that presumes the fullness of human personhood with the father this is the picture of the tabernacle or this picture in Revelation of the world, the earth, becoming a temple or tabernacle where God and humanity meet in the full reciprocity of love, where the Son and Spirit are realized as the fullness of truth. Eternity lies not beyond time or after time, but on a level with it, over time. That is that eternity is breaking into time in the Son. Time and history are not an independent force, but God is revealing himself through the Son. And of course the danger is that if we miss that, rather than the Son being the medium of creation through the Father, by the Spirit, creation from nothing may implicate a kind of primary relationship with nothing. Maybe this is the picture in modern cosmology, creation ex nihilo. I think creation ex nihilo is true. It's a biblical doctrine, but we have to understand that time is a measurement. The eternal is the source of all things, and this is, I think, the meaning of the Lamb crucified from the foundation of the world. That is that Christ crucified is not in the middle of history, but is there at the beginning of history. That time has reality only in its relation to eternity. That in the fulfilled times and seasons, God was incarnated. If eternity is clothed in temporality, then time also proves to be fraught with eternity. In the sun, time and eternity, heaven and earth, history and spirit intersect. The vertical segments of time penetrate eternity. Therefore, nothing of that which only appeared once for a moment in time can vanish. Think about that a minute. That's a wonderful thing, but that's also a frightening thing. Apparently, nothing will be forgotten or concealed. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And best, perhaps, you know, in our fear that we hide in oblivion from the reality of the eternal That's our first problem. We can get caught up in God simply as Father. But just as belief in the Father apart from the Son is a half-truth, historically the opposite has also happened. Where the Son has been taken as primary and sufficient, exclusive of the truth of the Father and the Spirit, then the historical and the human have come to have predominance over the transcendent. And time and history have been presumed to contain their own sufficient meaning. I think this describes the historicism that we are strangely caught up in, in both religious Christian conservatism and liberalism. You know, higher critical attacks on the Bible, and the retreat to a kind of literalism. It's a missing of the spirit of history. This is Henry de Lubac, who was actually a Roman Catholic thinker who talks about a resourcement or a new theology. And he describes the goal of the early exegesis of the church to grasp the spirit in history or to undertake the passage from history to spirit. We move from Christ the Son, in history, to the gift of the Spirit. And that's the way the early church fathers, like Origen, would read the Bible. They're not getting rid of the history, they're not getting rid of the letter, but they're saying there is a spiritual aspect to it. That the prime meaning is not simply in the fleshly and the historical. There's a dyadic union between the Son and the Spirit. Everything that the Spirit tells us is through the Son. The Word, the Scripture, the historical, though, points us to the Spirit. And it's only in the Spirit that we realize the fullness of the meaning of the Son. And so the history, or the Old Testament, becomes the mediating source for God only with the incarnation of the Son. It's incomplete truth. But now in the Son we have access to a spiritual reading. It's not simply that Moses and the law prepared for the coming of Christ. Jesus says in John 5, 46, Moses spoke about me, Jesus says. And so Jesus, as the interpretive key of history, it's not a denial of history, but it's saying in history is the revelation of Christ, and this is only realized through the Spirit. History is not an end in itself. Historical facts alone are dead and gone. They've passed on. The role of history is to pass on, to pass on Christ. And the events recorded in the Bible, whatever they might be, as they were unfolding, there's a sense in which if they do not point to Christ through the Spirit, they're exhausted in their historical moment in time, their factual reality. It doesn't survive. You know, this is what Paul says in First Corinthians 10. These things happened, referring to the Old Testament, for our edification. How are they for our edification? Only through Christ. They're only for the purpose of our spiritual recreation in Christ. Thus, in its entirety, up to the final event, history is preparation for something else. And to deny this, is to deny history. The way that Origen pictures it, he says that in following the trail of truth in the letter of scripture, he describes it as climbing a ladder. And the ascent to the spiritual realities is given to us through the rungs of history. And only with this ascent, this perpetual movement toward the transcendent, does the spirit make all things new. That's why we call it the New Testament. It's constituted then through the Spirit. And even in the New Testament, there can be a clinging to the letter. So if we do not ascend above the history, even where we obtain complete harmony between the New and the Old Testament or complete harmony between the Gospels, it's still as if we remained at the literal level, this is the problem of the scribes and the Pharisees. They can't get beyond the letter of the law. And so Origen or Paul, they invite us to see the heavenly, the spiritual, the unseen. This is Second Corinthians four, seventeen to eighteen. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal. The things which are historical are temporal. The things which are fleshly are temporal, I'm adding. But I think we could go through and say, the letter is temporal, but it points beyond itself from the seen to the unseen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but which are not seen are eternal. And so Origen, Paul, the early church, they want the mind to be raised to a spiritual understanding. We actually see God, we see a heavenly reality through the earthly presentation. In the words of Sergei Bulgakov, this is a possibility only realized through the Spirit." By its procession from the Father upon the Son, the third hypostasis, you know, there's a hypostatic union of the Trinity, but the Spirit loses itself, as it were. It becomes only a copula, only an is. The living bridge of love between the Father and the Son. The hypostatic between. Here is how we get from Father to Son and Son to Father through the Spirit. But in this kenosis, you know, the kenotic giving that is described in Philippians, the third hypostasis finds itself as the life of the others, as the love of the others, as the comfort of the others. It is possible we can distinguish clearly between the different modes of this love, the different modes of this truth, particularly as we see it in the third hypostasis. That is, the spirit always points us not to the spirit himself or herself, but to Christ and to the Father. And there's a kind of self-abolition of the Holy Spirit. And so the spirit disappears, as it were, while becoming perfectly transparent for the Father and the Son. And this is the perfection of divine life in us. And this is my third and final warning. So we can talk about the Father apart from the Son and the Spirit, or we can talk about the Son apart from the Father and the Spirit. But I think the third and most deadly error is to talk about the Spirit apart from the Father and the Son, which is, I think, it's the most dangerous, but maybe this is the most pervasive error. Where the Spirit has been cut off from the Son and Father, The spirit is made almost a deity unto himself. The human and the historical are set aside, you know, in a kind of Gnostic or the false teaching of the first and second century, which I think is the predominant false teaching of our day. People would embrace the divine apart from Christ, apart from Jesus. This is why John says that anyone who says that Christ has not come in the flesh is of the Antichrist. If it's all spirit and no flesh, this is the teaching of the devil, of the Antichrist. This false teaching, I think it's the primary target of several books in the New Testament, but it's the primary target of many of the church fathers. Gregory, the theologian, pictures the entire preparation of the Old Testament and the preparation of Christ as preparation for the coming of the Spirit. He says, For it was not safe when the God of the Father was not yet acknowledged plainly to proclaim the Son. We have to understand God as Father before we understand the Son. Nor when that of Son was not yet recognized or received, to burden us further with the Holy Ghost. We need to understand who the Son is to proceed to the Holy Ghost. And so he describes a gradual process in which Christ's entire work, from the beginning of the Gospel, after the Passion, you know, after the Ascension, it is all dedicated to making perfect human powers to receive the breath of the Holy Spirit. That's the culmination. Right? Of the Gospels. And always Christ spoke of the Spirit in conjunction with his own teaching. The Father sends the Spirit, but Jesus says, in my name. And in order to call to remembrance all that I have taught you, as Gregory describes it, this careful approach to the Spirit was in order to ensure that he might not be seen to be a rival God. And according to Gregory, this is the third and most dramatic movements of God. He sets up the three stages of history. He calls it three earthquakes. The first earthquake is the revelation of the Father. The second earthquake is the revelation of the Son. And this final and great earthquake is the revelation of the Spirit. The Old Testament proclaimed the Father openly and the Son more obscurely. The new manifested the Son and suggested the deity of the Spirit. Now the Spirit himself dwells among us and supplies us with a clear demonstration of God. And so this third earthquake unleashes, I think, the most radical of possibilities, but also the greatest possibility of perversion. Perversion and i think this explains matthew 12:31 i believe it is the finality and fullness of the spirit which raises the specter of this kind of this unforgivable sin that jesus talks about so the conclusion god can only be worshiped and the fullness of truth can only be fully apprehended in the fullness of the trinity apart from which the truth of god is subject to perversion only on the basis of this fullness can humankind enter into truth or into actual participation in god that's the possibility realized through the spirit so from the spirit comes our new birth here is the possibility of new creation here is the possibility of deeper knowledge of him than has ever been realized A personal fullness and knowledge, a full entry into the truth. And so to speak against the Spirit is to reject the fullness of truth, the fullness of who God is. It is to know fully and in the ultimate perversion of truth and responsibility to tread on that fullness. And let me conclude then with this warning from the book of Hebrews. Let's look at Hebrews 10. 26 to 29. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and is regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the spirit of grace?
0: Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth